What is up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of It's Called Soccer, the American soccer show that covers everything happening in the world of soccer for America. Today, I'm your host, Jake Landau, joined, as always, by T-God, through <laughs> Doctor of the Universe, Thomas Godden. How are you? We have a packed episode today. Let's go. Dude, I'm doing ready to talk. I'm doing great. I'm ready to talk. This has been an awesome week of soccer. Lots happened, so ready to dive into it and see what we got in store for this episode. This episode is all about a lot of things. Fulton Balligan probably is the one we have to lead off with. This guy just hit 20 goals today in League of for Rems. He's on loan from Arsenal. He has committed his future to the U.S. men's national team. So what does that mean for our national team future? How do we line up? How does he change the team? We'll go through all of that, including talking a little bit about uh, the athletic article that covered how Fuller and Balligan came to be committed to the U.S. and what that looked like. The U-20s have started their World Cup journey. They beat Ecuador in a thrilling one nothing victory. Joe Go, Jonathan Gomez, the dual national from Mexico. He can't play for Mexico in the U-20 World Cup because they're not qualified. He gets the goal to give the U.S. the one nothing victory against Ecuador in extra time, the 92nd minute. It all but essentially guarantees that we are through to the knockout rounds as the best third place teams in these groups move on and we have Fiji and Slovakia to go. So Ecuador is probably our most difficult game. We'll review that, talk about who has stock up, stock down, everything that happened with the U-20 game. Then the Bundesliga is coming to a close. Pellegrino Matrazzo and John Brooks have secured safety in the Bundesliga. Matrazzo, who was fired from Stuttgart earlier in the season and hired at Hoffenheim to save them while they were in the re- relegation fight, will be safe. He will finish above Stuttgart as well. So we'll talk about that. Gio Reyna and Dortmund. Tom is repping the Dortmund kit today for a reason. Dortmund are in the driver's seat to win the Bundesliga for the first time in years, taking it and snatching it away from Bayern Munich as they lost their match against RB Leipzig at home to give Dortmund pole position going into next weekend, the final game of the Bundesliga season. Leeds Americans, they are going to be relegated, most likely. It's not official yet. Uh, but they will need a miracle on the final day of the Premier League match day to stay up in the Premier League. What will happen to Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, and Brendan Aronson next season? We'll talk through all of those and where they should go, what the permutations of the futures looks like. That's why we have the Doctor of the Universe here with us. And finally, 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 the championship playoff final is set. Uh, sadly, Zach Steffen and Lyndon Gooch have been eliminated, but we do have one American still in play. Ethan Horvath, everyone's favorite goalkeeper for U.S., is in the running to qualify or promote Luton against Coventry City. That will be next Saturday at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Okay, what an episode we have here. Can't wait to dive into it. Tom, first, before we even talk about anything else, how good does it feel to know that Balogun is committed to the U.S.? Dude, it's such a huge win for for the U.S. We haven't had a true number nine really rise above just a pool of basically similarly similarly skilled players. There's some prospects like Pepe. They're sort of poised to maybe break out. But no one's really staked a claim to the striker spot since what? Josie Altador? And even then, he was not really scoring in Europe or really doing a great job of staking a claim to it with his club play, this is the first time we've ever really seen a true out-and-out striker commit in their future to the national team and really give us a promising number nine locked-on target man for at least a decade. I guess he's not really a target man. He's more of a second striker, but 
and we've got the nine position at least sorted out. I, I feel a lot more confident. Do you feel a lot more confident with our nine pool now that Balligan's on the team? BetOnline.ag is your number one source for all of your basketball information, stats, news, and scores. Get the latest odds and lines, including the latest player reports for this year's pro basketball playoffs. BetOnline is always your sports information headquarters this season, as we have you covered for all of your sports wagering needs, basketball, Major League Baseball, NHL hockey, right to UFC, boxing, and the best sport on earth, soccer. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to get your betting information, including live betting options and your favorite casino and car games you can play right from your own home. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Be sure to use our promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Please gamble responsibly. I do, absolutely. We, we've talked a lot about how the number nine position has tons of depth. We have players that can maybe reach that potential to be a number nine for the future of the U.S. And we have players in these positions like Christian Pulisic or Tyler Adams, Esther McKinney, uh, Jedi Robinson, like all of them are performing at the highest level, but we just don't have that number nine yet that was at that same level. And I think what Fuller and Balligan gives to us is a number nine at that level. I mean, it's it's funny. He commits to the U.S. He scores the goal this weekend. Then he puts out an Instagram post saying that he's the first American to score 20 goals in a top five league. Clint Dempsey was the closest with 17 for Fulham. So he, he seems to be enjoying it. He seems to be milking it, but in a positive way. And I do think Balligan does change the way that the U.S. lines up. I think it changes how we can evaluate our talent in the future because Really, like the World Cup showed us that we were probably a number nine and maybe one center back away from being true contenders, at least in the top six or seven teams that could have made it further in the tournament. But the fact that we don't have to rely on Haji Wright or Daryl DK to be healthy or Josh Sargent to be hot and in form, to know that we have Balligan that can stretch the back line. He, he's really good at timing his runs, similar to like Jamie Vardy. So if we want to play on the counterattack and get him behind, we can do that. He's great in possession. He's a really tricky dribbler. So if we want to play in possession, and if he wants to drop in, you know, false nine or second striker, he can do that. He's he's not your target striker, right? Like he's not going to get a ton of header goals. He has scored with his head, by the way, this season, but he he's not like we're lining him up in the box and just swinging in crosses. That's not the best way to use him. So just the fact that we have someone of this caliber, he's 21. He's on loan right now in Liga, so he will be back with Arsenal. We'll see if they sell him or not next season. I think that'll be a big conversation, what happens to him in the summer transfer window, because he's going to be you know, probably evaluated at $30, $40 million for a transfer, but he's going to be probably third in the depth chart behind Gabriel Jesus and Eddie and Ketia at Arsenal. So what do you think he needs to do? This summer, he's going to be with us for the Gold Cup, which is really exciting, and the Nations League, which is incredibly exciting. We'll be able to see him for the first time with the U.S. team. What's the summer look like to you for Fuller and Balligan? It's going to be really interesting because I think a lot of the conversation around what the summer looks like revolves around that transfer question. I think personally, I would love to see him play both the Nations League and the Gold Cup, but that depends. Does he get sold from Arsenal? Does he need a full preseason with a new club to sort of establish himself? I personally want him playing in Europe more than I want him playing every single possible minute for the U.S. this summer. 
but we do need to see him with the team, see him integrated. So maybe we see him for the Nations League in the Gold Cup group stage or something like that. Um, but yeah, it really is interesting to see what we do with him, how we line up. I think he slots in immediately as our number nine, particularly for Nations League. And it's a great one-two punch with him and Pepe, I think. It'll be really fun to sort of watch them work, watch them sort of probably go 60-30 in a couple of these games and just see how they feed off each other's energy, push each other to be better, um, and how they link up with these uh, with our talented wingers who I think are going to come in and have great summers. So it'll be really fun to watch this team work and see how they play. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about how you think we'll line up because Allegan gives us a number nine that can play in the 4-3-3. But I think for me, what's most important is that we finally have a piece at the striker position that can interchange with the the other forwards in the line. So if our front three is Christian Pulisic, Balogun, and either Timothy Way or Gio Reyna, all three of them can play across the three positions in the front line. Whereas with Pepe, you really have a player that's has to be the number nine. You know, he's mm-hmm. going to be in that position. He can't really go out wide and, and create like that. So I think it gives us a lot of flexibility in how we line up, how we play, the style and tactic that we use. Um, now, I'm, I'm considering this in a 4-3-3, but we'll talk about this a little later on. The U-20 team used a bit different of a formation. And yeah. I'm wondering if this opens us up to either play with a three-in-the-back system for the senior team or potentially a 4-4-2, a formation that we saw you know, our national team beat Spain and, and have some of our best success in the 2010s. So what do you what do you think this means to how we line up? I, I think it does add some more tactical wrinkles. Like I've said, I, I'm really excited about Pepe's future. He's played so well for Groningen on a horrible team this year. I think a two-striker look with Balogun and Pepe, particularly with their skill sets, they would complement each other. I think you could definitely see some looks where that would give some teams headaches, particularly with how good our wingbacks are. Destin Robinson get bombing down the field with, you know, Pepe and Balogun in the middle sort of waiting to receive balls and put them in the net. You've, you've got a really fearsome team there. Um, I, I think it just sort of is an incredibly flexible sort of roster that we can construct now. We want to go 4 2 3 one. We've been pressing in a 4 2 4. You got Reyna who can interchange with Balog and maybe play some center forward. You have Pulisic and Wea who can sort of interchange with both of those guys. And you have very fluid attacks. I, I just, I like the flexibility it gives us. And yeah, the U20s have been showing us some 3-4-3, and maybe it opens up that, especially in matches where Tyler Adams is not available. So yeah, well, it'll be really interesting to see what Hudson and eventually our new manager end up doing with this squad. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about how this came to be, because it's well known that Balogun was in Florida with the U.S. team. He pulled out of the U21 squad for England when they were qualifying for the Euros. And there was an athletic article this week that detailed how it came to be that Balogun pulled out of that camp, came to Florida, met with some representatives from the U.S. camp, was able to go back, talk to all of his family. His family was pushing him to commit to the U.S. And if you look across, like, obviously, you know, this is going to come down to national pride, the what you feel when you put on the shirt, what you feel when you touch the crest and you you walk out onto the pitch. But at the same time, like, we have to say he'd be further down in the depth chart for both England and Nigeria. For Nigeria, it's just wrong time, <laughs> wrong place for, for Balogun because yeah. Osemen is the leading scorer in Syria. He's 24. He's going to be the number nine for Nigeria for the next 10 years. Then you have Harry Kane, who's getting older, but then you have Rashford, Tony, all these other players for England 
Uh, yeah. And and you have the English coach, Gareth Southgate, that's kind of talking smack about how he doesn't want to see anyone that's not in the Premier League, uh, specifically calling out Balogun in that uh, speech when Balogun was meeting with U.S. representatives. And it seems like all of that pushed him to commit to the U.S. Um, Tom, before you, you say your opinion on this, I do want to say one thing. The people that were part of this to to get Balogun to commit to the U.S. were people within the U.S. Soccer Federation because we don't have a manager. Obviously, Anthony Hudson did some work to do this, but one name that consistently came up was Michael Camerman, who is the press officer for the U.S. men's national team. He got a lot of shtick for how Greg Berhalter handled his press conferences while he was coach. So I just want to say, calling out to Michael Camerman, everyone who's hating on Camerman, got to give him some some credit where it's due for getting Balogun to commit to the U.S. I'm not saying it was him all alone, but he was a big part of the story of all the little steps that needed to happen to get Balogun to commit. I think also fair to shout out JT Batson too, who has just come into his role at U.S. soccer and just run with it and done such a great job. And he seems to have been very active in all of this. And I'm I'm really a fan of all the stuff that JT Batson has done to sort of improve the Federation over the last few months. So Shout out to J.T. Batson, too, for his role in this. I do think that, you know, I hate to bring it back to this. You have to give some credit to Burhalter too. I know that Burhalter wasn't super involved in this recruitment process, but the culture that he built, the dual-nat recruiting culture, the culture of young players who like playing together, is an attractive culture for a player like Balogun who can come in and meet with a Weston McKennie and a Eunice Musa and say, okay, yeah, this is a group of guys that I want to play with going forward. So... There's credit to go around for USSF, but there's a lot of people who did a great job to make this happen. For sure. And the story also articulates some dinners that were had with Agent Matt Turner and Agent Eunice Musa to get him over here while while he was in Florida. Um, he didn't train with the team, but he was training where the team was training, uh, basically, you know, parallel to them. And he met with representatives. He had dinner with his Arsenal teammate, Matt Turner, and t- one of his good friends from the Arsenal Academy days, Eunice Musa. So thank you to everyone that got Balogun here. That is a huge win for the U.S. And like you said, the the training camp and the camp culture within this team, I think it has to be said that Balogun is not the first player to commit to this team after coming and meeting with the team and seeing what the culture was like. We've seen Eunice Musa, Serginho Dest, Ricardo Pepe, Jesus Ferreira even was uh, eligible for Colombia. So Balogun is one of many players that have seen the culture that ha- that is being built. I mean, we talk about all these players. Pulisic is the oldest one, and he's 24 years old. The World Cup's in three years. Uh, Gio Reyna's 20 still. Yunus Musa's 20. Like, all these players are... We talk about this all the time. We've heard us talk about it in previous episodes as well, but it just needs to continue to be said just how young this team is, how much quality there is. And Balogun is just that. I think, one last piece to really make us contenders in the international stage. Oh yeah, for sure. And we just, we're going to keep getting better over time. These young players are going to keep to grow and develop and the future's bright. We say that a lot, but the future's just so bright and Balogun is sort of just another piece of that puzzle. Right. Okay. Anything else to say about Balogun? Not really. Excited for Nations League. Cool. And if you would like to feel the joy of how you felt when Fuller and Balogun broke the news that he was committing to the U.S., 
You can also look into joining the It's Called Soccer Patreon, where you can get exclusive interviews with players and coaches, and you can feel the inner joy and inner wonders of what it feels like to support independent creators like ourselves covering soccer. So check that out. It's patreon.com slash it's called soccer for, I think, $3 a month. You can support us and feel the joy that you felt when Fuller and Bagan committed to the U.S., all right, Tom, let's talk a little bit about the U-20 squad that took on Ecuador. That was probably our most difficult group stage match. Ecuador came in third place in the last U-20 World Cup. They have one of the uh, best prospects from South America on their team, Paez, as well, who balled out. He almost had an incredible dribble and run in on goal against the U.S., but fortunately, he, he just took one last poor touch in the box. So talk to me about what you saw from this game. You mentioned the three four three. Where did that come from? That was a wild formation. I kind of expected a th- a four two three one or a four three three, as we've sort of seen a lot from this U twenty team. I think the false nine wasn't super unlikely that they threw out there, but yeah, they threw out a really weird formation uh, where the players who were in there, I think, were who we thought would play, but the positions they were playing in were just a little bit wild. Uh, do we want to go through the full formation and who played where? Yeah, go for it. All right, so. At goalkeeper, we had Gaga Slanina. Um, our, our, yeah, obvious choice in the Chelsea Academy, hailed as the next big thing at Chelsea. A goalkeeper had a great game. Um, across the back, we had a three-back line of Josh Winder at left center back. We had um, Brandon Craig of the Philadelphia Union Academy at center ba- at true center back, and then on right center back, we had Justin Che, formerly of Hoffenheim, coming back to FC Dallas. Our wing backs sort of joined the midfield too. We had. Uh, Caleb Wiley of Atlanta United on the left wing back. We had Obed Vargas next to him from Seattle. Then there was, uh, who was actually Jack McLinn from Philadelphia Union was the other center, center midfielder. And then Jonathan Gomez played out of position as the right back uh, coming from Real Sociedad. And then across the front, we ran Diego Luna as a false nine. And then John Owen Wolf as our left wing and Quinn Sullivan was the right wing. It was a very funky formation. That front three was very fluid. A lot of dropping into the midfield combining, but what did you think of it when you saw it? I thought, you know, if this was a team that played together all the time, wonderful. Like, great use (laughs) of players, great use of the talents and skill sets that you have. I was a little worried about seeing Jogo on the right. He's usually a left back. He's very left-footed as well. Uh, Caleb Wiley was an interesting point to me because he's either, and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but he's either a left back that plays very high up the pitch or he plays left wing. He's not necessarily a part of a, a three in the back system where he plays that that wide fullback. So for me, I'm like, yeah, the, it makes sense where you put all these players, but it worried me a little bit that this is a national team. This is a group of players that rarely play in this formation. I mean, the Philadelphia Union play a 4-4-2 diamond, and you had Jack McGlynn in the middle, like playing almost a, a holding midfielder next to Obed Vargas. It, and, um, and Vargas is, plays a double pivot, a 4-2-3-1 as a six. Like, I, I thought that it was an amazing show of quality, and I also thought that it was really genius from Mikey Varas of how he implemented like stylistic choices into how we played so that players could still feel confident in the way that they played for their clubs. And so what I mean by that is like 
we still played a counter pressing game. So mm-hmm. while we might have not been in a four four two diamond, Jack McGlynn still knew his triggers to go press. Oh. When to counter press, when to hold the ball up. And like, yeah, it didn't need to be technical. We didn't need to find triangles and do crazy stuff. Like we played we did play a wild formation, but I thought we played simply. I thought we played beautifully at times. Um, our defense was a little more open than I would have hoped for, but we'll talk about some stock up, stock down, and maybe why that was. But um, yeah, at the beginning of the game, I would say I was a little bit worried that it would take away from the qualities that we know to be true for our players. But I think by the end of the game, I was convinced that we still used everything that we know to be true about our style and our abilities and our technical quality and just fit that into a different mold of a formation on the field. I agree. And I think that it was sort of done in a way that brought out the best of a lot of players. So, you know, Brandon Craig, I think particularly was, you know, put in a position where he could just shine. His best attribute is his ball playing and he just was breaking lines left and right. And it just sort of opened up the entire game. So Obed Vargas was another one who we just sort of seemed to thrive in the role they were giving him. And I think Caleb Wiley, you know, for all the talk of left back, left wing, I think a left wing back is probably his best position. So, yeah, I think that there was just a couple of players who were just put in a position to succeed and just, you know, we're missing a few key guys. You sort of play around that right now and sort of put guys where you can to make make them shine as best as possible. I think we'll talk about stock down too. There's some players who were in poor positions who I think had bad games, but for the most part, it really allowed players to shine. Yeah, and I, I think something that we did well, just to point it out tactically, is we played in really tight triangles uh, like near the sidelines. And as soon as we found a little bit of space to play a longer pass, we had a lot of space open to the left or right wings where Quinn, um, yeah, Quinn Sullivan, right? <laughs> yeah. He's on the right. Yeah. Um, and then Wolf was on the left. Like anytime that we played a quick triangle and found some space on the right side, someone would be able to play a long ball to Wolf on the left and open up that space. I thought we played well in transition. There were moments where, you know, it could have been better. And to me, all that is, is that these are really young players. Like, I'm not expecting everything to be perfect. Um, It was nice to see a pitch that we could pass on. Uh, After watching the CONCACAF U20 championships, it's just nice to see them on a true pitch where they can really show their qualities. So I was very happy with that. I think, yeah, for me, some of the winners were Open Vargas really impressed me. And Caleb Wiley, no matter where he played on the pitch, he was really great. Brandon Craig, amazing. Um, Jonathan Gomez, despite the goal, I thought had a really game, really good game um, mm. in the attacking phase, especially and just supporting the attack with his passing. Um, he he did this a few times where Ecuador is pressing us really high up the pitch. We were in our defensive third, and Jonathan Gomez kind of played like he was going to play a pass and then shifted his body weight and dribbled past an oncoming attacker. And it just opened up the field for us. And he did that a few times where it was like, yeah, playing out of a press with passing only is great and it looks wonderful, but it's also dangerous. Yeah. The fact that we could have, you know, wide backs that can beat a man on a dribble and open up space that way. I thought it really helped us just kind of, we, it did feel like the U S had control of that game the entire time. Like, if we go stock down, Joshua Winder was probably the player that sticks out the most for me. And it's, I had Owen Wolf too. Yeah, Wolf had some some balls that just kind of wasted an attack. But what I did just, you see? 
I just forgot about it on the field. He just sort of seemed very pedestrian. It seemed like every time he received the ball, he was looking to play a back pass or just wasn't doing a lot with it. You know, that changes. He gets an assist at the end of the game. But, you know, I just felt like he was way kind of wasteful and just not really making a huge impact whenever he got on the ball. Yeah. What about Winder for you? Because he's one of the players that comes in with kind of the the highest value. I mean, he's from USL, but he's going to be sold for millions of dollars to Benfica soon. Yeah. He comes in with, you know, one of the most impressive resumes in terms of minutes played for a senior team. What what stuck out to you about him? It just didn't seem athletic enough, almost. It's weird to say, but he just sort of seemed to be beat all the time. It kind of looked like a mini John Brooks out there, but he wasn't doing any of the fun passing that you get with a John Brooks. <laughs> um, it just sort of seemed like every single time Ecuador found some joy, it was by beating him and sort of getting down that right flank. And, you know, it might be he was played a little wider than he's used to, but it just it didn't seem up for it. Yeah, I agree. It, it was kind of like simple things that I saw where if you don't follow one two and you let your player go on and and get into the box that's kind of a cardinal sin for a center back where yeah i don't i don't think it was like laziness maybe he's tired from having a lot of minutes in in the usl um but really like that is you're right that's where a lot of ecuador's attacks came through and um Slanina had a good game other center backs had a good game thankfully ecuador didn't score and even even if it had stayed nil nil, the U.S. put themselves in a great position to qualify for the knockout rounds. But mm-hmm. with this win, I mean, we have Fiji on Tuesday at two p.m. and then mm-hmm. Fiji, I think, on Friday next week at two p.m. as well. I mean, pretty much guaranteed to go through to the knockout rounds. After seeing this team in action, now have have your expectations changed at all? I think I want to see them with Cade Cowell and Kevin Paredes and Rokas Puxas before I really judge them. Um, I really, I, I'm impressed with how well they did, given that I think three of their best players were not playing. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see how they do with that. I also think, you know, we need to have a conversation about the nine and the false nine and how that's going to affect them because Diego Luna had an okay game, but it's probably one of the more controversial games a person played on the field. Why Why do you say that? I mean, he was making stuff happen. Yeah, he was making stuff happen. He was, you know, just taking guys on left and right on the dribble. But he would beat three guys on pretty regularly, and then the fourth one would take it off him. It just sort of seemed he would beat a guy, beat a guy, turn the ball over repeatedly. It just seems that everything was just one too many touches, one too many guys tried to be taken on, not really connecting that final ball. There, there's clearly talent there, but... You know, it felt a little wasteful. It felt like a lot of attacks died. <laughs> Definitely a game where you look at that player and you're like, wow, that potential, that quality, is that ceiling is insane. <laughs> he also, with his dribbling, with his beating of defenders, you genuinely do say, wow, when, when yeah. he does something like that. I mean, he had like a croquetta that beat two players on the dribble, got him into a box, and then, you're right, he just missed that final pass or got the ball taken off of him. Yeah, slow mo replays look amazing. You're like, damn, that yeah. guy's awesome. But at the same time, you need that final ball. If you're playing in that false nine, if you're playing in the ten position, your role is to distribute. Your role is to mm-hmm. create. Um, so make sure that you're doing that. But yeah, I thought he showed tons of quality. But mm-hmm. he, he didn't quite there. I think it would have been a different game for him if Wiley finishes. He had a really nice play where he slipped the ball into Wiley, and I think you know in Atlanta he finishes that ball, but he just. 
didn't quite get around it, didn't quite get a good shot off. Um, one too many touches, I think. Um, and that would have, I think, changed the evaluation a little bit, which is a little bit unfair to Luna. But at the same time, you know, there's just a lot of wasteful stuff that didn't come off, and it hurt the attack. And I thought we played a little bit better going forward when Yappy came in. Yeah. I mean, do you think that Cowell is in contention to play in that position? Because really, Darren Yappy is the only number nine. We talked about this on the last episode. Yeah. Diego Luna is playing in that position in that in this first game. Yappy came in to play that number nine, although he, he kind of played out wide a little bit where Wolf was. Um, do you think Cowell is the answer to that? Cowell is an interesting one. I feel like he's... I feel I personally evaluated more as a true number nine, but it seems like everyone else is evaluating him more as a left winger. So it it's he's got the athleticism to play that number nine, but I don't know really where we see him slotting in when he comes in. I, I personally would like to see him with the nine. I thought that during the CONCACAF qualifying too, that he seemed better when he was in central instead of play, trying to play out wide. So it'll be really interesting to see where Veras plays them, especially with Paredes coming in too, who I think is our best left winger. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what we're gonna see out of it. Plus, is Cal suspended one more game? Yes. Okay. Cool. I thought he was. Uh, yes. We have Paredes that still needs to play his last game for Wolfsburg. Yep. We have uh, Puchas who has a cup final in a few days and will join the team until the third game, at least in the group stage. But the fact that we know pretty sure uh, that we're gonna be in the knockout rounds kind of helps everyone to to come together. Um, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like if we win the group or just qualify we'll be there we gotta hammer Fiji though Slovakia beat him by four you gotta win that game and you gotta do it by multiple goals I, I think that that's sort of the next litmus test for this team is they look beautiful in possession the defense is solid can we find the back of the net that is I think the biggest question we're going to be asking in all tournament but Ecuador <laughs> is quite a good team yes Ecuador is probably going to be our most difficult test. We were missing three of our best players. We played players out of position. We played a crazy formation, and we still won that game, one nothing. So we'll see what happens for the rest of the tournament. Uh, make sure you're you're following along with that. Um, if you do again want to see any exclusive interviews with some of these players, I am reaching out to the press officer uh, throughout this tournament, so you can see them uh, potentially on the Patreon or as an extension of these podcasts. As we go into the next few weeks, uh, Tom, if we get Caleb Wiley, I'll make sure you're you're included in that one to pause awesome. and join for the the Atlanta fandom. <laughs> be fun. <laughs> uh, talking about, uh, you mentioned that one of our players, Joshua Winder, looked like a John Brooks out there. Now, John Brooks has had somewhat of a resurgence himself. Let's talk a little bit about the Bundesliga and the close to the season because uh, Pellegrino Matarazzo, an American from New Jersey, America is the coach of Hoffenheim right now. John Brooks was uh, brought in from Benfica actually uh, halfway through the season in the January transfer window. He has been just inserted right into the center back position for Hoffenheim has come in and Hoffenheim are out of uh, relegation candidacy. They are safe from relegation this season. Um, So before we talk about the top of the table and Geo and Dortmund and what what all that looks like, um, talk to us a little bit about John Brooks and Pellegrino Matarazzo and, and some of the Americans in the Bundesliga. Yeah, so um, uh, they've clawed their way back. Brooks came in and immediately lost like six games in a row before being dropped from the starting 11 for a few matches. But uh, since has righted the ship and they're playing really solid football right now. They've 
really managed to claw their way up the table. They're playing great defense. They're winning games by multiple goals. I think they're going to finish above Stuttgart, which is where Matarazzo was fired from. So it's been a great end of the season for Hoffenheim. Brooks has looked like one of their better players too. So he's starting to push again for a U.S. call-up over the summer. Are you, are you, is he on your Nations League roster list right now? I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> why wouldn't he be? Yeah. yeah. Especially with Tim Ream gone. I agree. Yeah. I mean, Tim Ream is still going to be recovering from his arm injury. We have a player in the Bundesliga that's getting tons of minutes at the center back position. We know his quality. He's 30 years old. Like, that's not that old for a center back. Yeah. Um, despite what happened with Greg Berhalter, I still think he has some good relationships with the team. And anyone can come in and, you know, say they're sorry, have one on one conversations, and rebuild those relationships. There is no reason why. If if John Brooks isn't with the team, there's no reason why he can't at least still be in contention for the national team after getting this type of playing time. And yeah, like you said, so Stuttgart, uh, everyone has played 33 games. There's 34 in the season, so they have one game left. Stuttgart is currently in 15th position, uh, tied with Bochum for that last relegation playoff spot on 32 points. Hoffenheim is uh, in 13th position with 35 uh, with a much better goal differential. So even if Stuttgart wins their next game and Hoffenheim loses, likely will be the case that Hoffenheim finishes above Stuttgart. Um, I So I don't know if you're kind of prepared to talk about Pellegrino Matrazzo, but I did watch the Hoffenheim game against Union Berlin, and it was my first time really paying attention to how Matrazzo plays or tries to set up, set up his team. And this is one game, so... If we want to do, you know, further breakdown, I can definitely watch some more footage. But I thought they did a really good job of, like you said, playing solid defense, making sure that that was the foundation of the team, uh, trying to minimize the chances from Union Berlin. Uh, but at the same time, in attack, I thought it was really interesting how they would kind of pull defenders out of position. So the number nine would drop really deep, pull a defender center back out of position, and then their wide player would run into that channel and they would play these long balls like they weren't. They weren't hopeful. They weren't trying to get in behind the line. They were just trying to play balls that were kind of like in dangerous areas where their players had good chances to get on to the end of it. Mm -hmm. And that's how they got a lot of their chances. Um, They also counterpressed really well. That's how they scored their second goal. Um, So I was really impressed with how Hoffenheim played. And just like if you're going to have average personnel, you know, a team that's going to finish between 7th and 12th in the Bundesliga, um, that might be the way to go. Just try and get as many clean sheets as you can. Play the balls into dangerous channels. Drop in. Take center backs out of position. Defenders out of position. So, I mean, I know we're we might be at the point where we're talking about a U.S. manager soon, um, potentially Jesse Marsh or someone else. But Matarazzo, if he does want the job, I could see that working really well for the U.S. and kind of aligning with the players that we have. Has he always run a back three? I don't know if you've watched him much at Stuttgart before. I don't know enough about his history to yeah. say yes or no. Because I, I, I'm curious to see how the U.S. would do in a back three. I, I think that that maybe doesn't get as not, enough of our midfield players on the field, but it would be interesting to see what a back three specific coach could install uh, with time and you know the player pool that we have. So. Matarazzo is one of those names who's always sort of been on the fringe of that manager conversation who I think deserves a little bit more of a look. He's been in the Bundesliga for years now. He took Stuttgart up and has basically been there for years. So, yeah, I, I had been really fun to watch, you know, that rise 
to prominence for him, essentially. Um, I think at some point he deserves a look. For sure. Okay, at the top of the table, Tom, Bayern Munich fumble the ball. Um, wrong football, but still. Uh, Thomas Dugel's team and in Munich have lost uh, at home 3-1 to RB Leipzig, essentially giving Dortmund the chance to take over pole position. Today, Dortmund did win 3-0. Um, they are now in one win away from grabbing the title in the last few years from Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga. Gio Reyna did see uh, a few minutes at the very, very end of the match. I thought, um, because, so they were playing Augsburg. Augsburg got a red card in the first half. I thought the game was going to call for a creative player that could break down a low block. That's Gio Reyna. But alas, uh, he only saw the last few minutes. But who am I? Because Dortmund still wins the game 3-0. Tom, what will it mean for Dortmund to beat Bayern Munich, the giants of uh, German football? I feel like it means a lot specifically to Dortmund. I feel like it would mean a lot to, you know, the whole Bundesliga if they were to dethrone Bayern. But specifically Dortmund, you know, after years and years and years of all of their best players being bought by Bayern Munich to finally retain enough of a squad that can go in and win the title, it's got to be just the best feeling in the world for that squad, specifically for those fans. It's going to mean a lot when Bayern finally gets dethroned. And I think Dortmund, after years of sort of playing second fiddle, watching their players leave is going to, you know, have just a giant weight lifted off their shoulders as a result of this. But they have blown this in the past, so let's not start popping the champagne yet. Um, it'll be... They've never been this close either. I think over the last <laughs> decade, they've come within two points as their closest. Um, even if they lose and Bayern win, I think they will lose the title by one point. So yeah, one point. No matter what happens, they'll be the closest that they have been. But you're right. They are eternal bottlers. Um, <laughs> a team that is renowned for, for how to mess up. Um, and if you are thinking that Manchester City is making the Premier League a Farmers League, a team that, uh, or a league where only one team wins, no other team has won the Bundesliga since 2011. Since the 2011 season. And that was Dortmund. Um, yeah. It's it's insane the dominance that Bayern has had in German football. And you're right, they just buy whatever player they want from other German teams. That consolidates all the power and the talent in at the top at uh, Bayern Munich. So, man, what, what a turnaround this could be, especially after firing Julian Nagelsmann, one of the best young coaches who was in, still in all three competitions. He was in the Champions League. He was in uh, the DFB Pokal. He was... He had just lost the the first place position in the Bundesliga for the first time that season, and he was fired. And now look at them, out of the Champions League, out of the DFB Pokal, in position to lose the Bundesliga. I mean, damn, that's that's insane, right? And nuts. I don't understand why you would ever make that decision. I just, that's a crazy, crazy overreaction to dropping out of pole position, especially Nagelsmann's a great manager, and I think that he would have probably righted the ship and gotten them back in position. It's kind of crazy how the season's played out. I wouldn't have expected, expected this to happen in the season after Holland leaves Dortmund. The video is like the worst season for this to be happening for Dortmund. And they've just sort of found a squad that just got red hot and stayed healthy and just ran with them. I, it kind of sucks as U.S. fans because you know Gio is not one of those players who has been getting regular minutes, but 
you almost can't argue with that decision because of how well the players are playing ahead of him. I think he's probably a better player than some of them too, but what are you going to do? They've won like 15 matches over the last 16 or something insane like that. Yeah, I mean, I would probably put Gio Reyna ahead of Julian Brandt. I'd put him ahead of uh, Njima. Adeyemi. Only Daniel Malin, yeah. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, you you mentioned uh, Holland, but they've kind of re-upped on talent. Mukoko is there. Uh, Adeyemi, who is at uh, RB Salzburg in the Champions League, is there. So they just keep finding this young core of talent that every year just churns and churns and churns. And finally, they, you're right, they have a squad that's challenging. Um, probably wasn't going to be the season that you think it's going to be. But uh, yeah, that top four from, from Germany is going to be fun to watch in that last match day. You have uh, the Dortmund-Munich storyline. Um, Leipzig has kind of solidified their place in third position. But then you have Union Berlin, who have been serial overperformers this season. They are tied on points with Freiburg. Um, Bayer Leverkusen is uh, within that Europa Conference League position, but Wolfsburg, Frankfurt are still in contention for that. So it's going to be a good final match day uh, in the Bundesliga. Tom, let's turn our sights to England in the Premier League. That final match day will also be interesting for other reasons. Um, Looking at the bottom of the table, we have Leeds, Leicester, or Everton going down. Maybe two of them. Maybe. I think it is guaranteed to be two of them at this yeah. point. Uh, Leeds look likely to be one of those teams after their loss today. They have a final match day against Spurs, and as bad as Spurs has been, that's still not a team that I really want to be playing on the final match day when I need a victory, especially when you consider that this is probably going to be Harry Kane's last game in a Spurs shirt. He's going to be wanting to do some stuff and go out in a blaze of glory. Um so if they do go down, if they uh, are going to the championship, we have three Americans that are tied to Leeds. Now, Weston McKinney is on loan from Juventus. He will likely go back to Juve over the summer and potentially reevaluate if he's going to stay at Juve or be sold. Um, we have Brendan Aronson and Tyler Adams that are Leeds players. Brendan Aronson, I could see him staying in the championship with Leeds, kind of bulking up, being more physical getting a season in the championship and then moving somewhere else if they don't get promoted right away. Um, Tyler Adams, though, I think he's going to be a hot commodity on the the transfer market, especially when you think about all of the center midfielders that could potentially move from their teams. I'm thinking about Declan Rice. I'm thinking about uh, Caicedo, McAllister from Brighton. Um, we also might talk about McKinney to Brighton as, as a possible landing spot for him. But yeah, I think if they go down, Tyler Adams is too good to be in the championship. If West Ham sells Declan Rice, they're going to want to re-up quickly, and Tyler Adams might be the perfect player to to go into that position. But where do you think these three players for Leeds are going to end up? Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. I think that I'd be disappointed if Adams doesn't end up on a Champions League level team at somewhere in the world. Um, it might be he might end up going back to Germany, might end up in Italy somewhere, but I think it probably will be a top level Premier League team that scoops him up quickly. He's just so talented. It would be a shame if he doesn't sort of make an upgrade from Leeds. Um, McKenney is a little bit different. I would like to see him possibly stay in the Premier League. Um, Brighton would be a good landing spot. They've played really well the last few years. They've been contenders almost. So, yeah, let's let's they see went for Europe today. Yeah, let's let's see McKenney there. I would I would not mind seeing that at all. So, um, I think that those two are sort of the likeliest to get a move. I don't think Leeds can recoup what they paid for Brendan Aronson at this point. I 
also think he probably needs a year in the championship to just sort of help him with his game. I think a year in a physical league where he's going to get bullied a lot is going to do him the wor- a world of good um, in helping him sort of become take that next step to being a really good attacking player. So, yeah, I think that that's sort of my ideal landing spot for the three is seeing Adams make a huge upgrade, McKenney stay in the Premier League, and Brendan Aronson go down and stay with Leeds. I, I could see Aronson kind of having the same projection, projected um, like development as a Jack Harrison, someone that mm-hmm. went down with Leeds, uh, played in the championship for a few years, came back up. Um, it just feels like there, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot that he can add to his game. Um, so you're right. I think, yeah, Tyler Adams is going to be a replacement for one of the center midfielders that leaves this season. Brendan Aronson might do uh, a world of good to have him in the championship. I think Brighton would be a wonderful spot to see McKinney. And if I'm being honest, Brighton might be a good landing spot for a few different Americans, uh, whether it's Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, maybe Eunice Musa is going to be on the move again. Although with their win against Real Madrid, it looks like they have secured safety in La Liga this season. So we'll see what happens to Eunice Musa. Um, I want to shout out to Chambers WI from the Discord. I want to read you something that he said and, and get your thoughts on it. He said, Leads to me as an example as to why not to panic when things aren't going great. Not saying that Jesse Marsh shouldn't have been fired, but Leeds clearly didn't have a plan on what to do after firing Jesse. They were not in the same situation that Southampton, Leicester, Everton, or Wolves were with their manager changing this year. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think with time now, you know, having the Monday Monday morning quarterback and looking back at lead season, it doesn't seem to me that Jesse Marsh was the issue. And if they had just kept him, they were kind of on a better trajectory to win some more points. I was, someone posted the numbers in somewhere on Twitter or somewhere that I was looking today. And Marsh had them the closest playing to their expected goals, expected points of any of the managers they've had this season. Um, or I guess the expected points per game was the stat. It was like minus 0.16 expected points per game um, to the actual points they were getting. I feel like they were a few weeks from turning it around when he was fired. And he just, I've, I've said this before, you have him, you spend 40 million plus, you go grab McKenney, you go grab Wilbur, and then fire him the next week. I just, I don't understand that move. It feels like maybe a month more of, letting those players cook would have been great for that squad and see if they could have righted the ship. They were definitely more fun to watch under Marsh than some of these other managers have been. So I, I don't know. If, yeah. If Bamford wasn't underperforming his expected goals by like six or seven this season. And a lot of well, that for Jesse Marsh. Or even if they'd had a pedestrian keeper, even not legitimately one of the three worst keepers in the premier league in Messier. Like they, they have had, a bad keeper and an underperforming striker, and that has really been the issue more than almost anything else. I don't really even think it's much on the manager. I think Tyler Adams goes down around the same time you fire Marsh, and your goalkeeper and striker issues just become that much more obvious, and the recipe is there for just this team to look horrible. Yep, and it is a disaster now. <laughs> I can tell you that. Uh, it is not fun watching Leeds right now. <laughs> Well, I watched the second half this morning, and I was kind of regretting my decision to get up and watch. It was rough. Yeah. All right, staying in England town, the championship playoff final. We did see two Americans leave the competition with Zach Steffen at Middlesbrough. Um, he'll be back to Man City, but I doubt that he will uh, continue 
on a contract there. Likely he'll be loaned or transferred again. Um, but Lyndon Gooch, Sunderland captain, loses to uh, Ethan Horvath and Luton, a stunner. Um, Luton and Coventry are two teams that you would have rarely thought of as contenders to be promoted this season. Two of the smallest stadiums that will come into the Premier League for either one that that wins this playoff final. And for me, the the championship final is one of my favorite games of the season every year. It's one that I watch no matter who's playing in it. But the fact that so many have had Ethan Horvath uh, or Americans in general over the last few seasons, it's made it that much more fun to watch. Um, talk to me a little bit about the championship final, uh, Luton versus Coventry. And I think Ethan Horvath's probably the player that's closest to staying with his club if they went up and I don't eat staying with them in the Premier League. I don't know. I'm interested to get your take on Ethan Horvath because I, I've seen some of his games and he looks pretty good. But when I talk to, when I see Luton fans discussing him online, they don't really seem like they're too enthused with keeping him. I think they want to upgrade if they make the Premier League. Um, Nottingham Forest fans don't want him back. They want him to go somewhere else. It, I just, I'm not sure what to make of his career trajectory. It sort of seems like he's rated as this sort of pogo stick. I, I guess, yeah club that sort of player that's just going to promote a bunch of teams but then never really be the keeper to you know get them in the premier league and keep them in the premier league it just doesn't seem like he's a premier league level keeper is that a fair assessment of him i mean probably i (laughs) like even though i might not agree with that assessment the fact that scouts and coaches and fan bases around the world do think that I'm I'm probably going to go with the the group think on that one. At the, at the same time though, like how can you argue with success and results? Especially yeah. at the keeper position, like Orvath has been when he's gotten playing time, his teams have won. Mm-hmm. And he is not, you know, he's not a keeper that makes a ton of mistakes, but I mean, if I look at Nottingham Forest and their keeper group, it's Kaylor Navas, Orvath is not better than Kaylor Navas. <laughs> Uh, Dean Henderson, Ethan Horvath is not better than Dean Henderson, and Wayne Hennessy, the the Wales goalkeeper, um, probably not better than Wayne Hennessy. Yeah. Um, so, do you want to go back to Nottingham Forest where you're? Well, all those guys are on loan, I think, pretty much. Nottingham Forest bought like a bunch of people on loan. There's 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 not a lot of those guys returning this year. Yeah, I mean, so Ethan Horvath has had four errors that have led to goal. The season in the championship, he's conceded 37 goals on 33.3 expected goals on target face. So pretty average numbers, um, but at the same time, like not not horrible either. I think if you're mm-hmm. a really club, you're you're probably going to look at those four errors that led to goals and think, you know what, um, I'm I'm probably a relegation candidate if I'm looking at Ethan Horvath, uh, yeah, a goalkeeper, and I do not want a keeper that's going to have errors that lead to goals because those four goals may end up leading me to lose hundreds of millions of dollars or pounds uh, to be allocated again. Well, and, you know, specifically Nottingham Forest, if it took Taylor Navas to keep you up, (laughs) then looking at Ethan Horvath is not really what I'm going to be doing because there are some serious squad upgrades that are needed and Horvath is not going to be an upgrade at the goalkeeper position. Yeah. I do think he could could easily make his way... um, being signed permanently to a championship club, uh, one that's compete potentially Sunderland or one that's competing for promotion in the next few seasons. 
I also think if he just takes a step back and looks across the other top five leagues, there's probably tons of opportunities in France or in Germany, potentially. Um, we've seen how how um, accommodating German football has been to Americans. Um, even think about Zach Steffen and his loan um, at first that kind of got him back on track. So I think there's teams out there, there's clubs out there that Ethan Horbath can go to and kind of build his... He doesn't need to build back anything because he's already he's promoted well if you get promoted he'll have yeah two clubs um, well and he was the backup last year of forest for most of the season yes but he was playing <laughs> in the final yes yep um and he's he has champions league experience like um, he he was the starting keeper for a champions league club um before they signed i forgot it was Mignolet. yeah yeah Mignolet. yeah um yeah. yeah, I mean, he has quality. He can go somewhere where he's going to play. Uh, it probably won't be in the Premier League, but that's up to him on what yeah. else to do next season. It'll it'll be really interesting to watch. I hope that he gets promoted. Ludentown is such a great story, too, that I really just want to see them get to the Premier League. They have, what, they've the first club to drop all the way down to the National League and possibly come back and get promoted all the way to the Premier League, and the first player to stick with the club to go all the way down to the National League and come back up. So... That's that's just an awesome story to, you know, hopefully see them go through. I'm I'm going to be rooting for them for sure, not just because of Luton Town or because of Ethan Horvath, but because this is just such a like a Cinderella story, like one of the most unlikely things to happen in English soccer in years. So when I was working in England, uh, my I had an office job. My uh, coworkers, shout out to Ed Asafu Ajay, looking much. Um, he was. He came up through the Luton Academy, played for Luton, um, won the League Cup in League Two, and was the MVP at Wembley for Luton. Um, but now he works an office job, just like all of us. And he was a wonderful guy. <laughs> Shout out to you, Ed. You're probably not watching because you're English and you don't care about him. <laughs> um, but just thought I'd share that uh, they're everywhere. Ed Asafu Ajay, MVP of life, MVP of Luton. Um, so I'm going to be rooting for my guy, Ed. And for my guy Ethan, in that championship final, it's next Saturday at eleven thirty p or eleven thirty a.m. Eastern time. Right, Tom. What else do you have to say? Anything else that happened in American soccer this week? I don't think so. I think we've pretty much covered it. Um, trying to think of anything notable in the other top leagues. Maybe Mark McKenzie is worth a quick mention. I don't know if you've been following. Yeah, he's like four goals in four games or something like that to end the season. Is he is he earning a summer look again for the U.S.? Yeah, again, why not? Why why wouldn't you look at these players? Yeah, um, Mark McKenzie also was like he was a top prospect coming through the Philadelphia Union Academy, sold to a good level club in Europe. He's competing. He's at times he's captained his club in Belgium as well. Gank is one of the best clubs there in that league. Um, I don't think they're going to win the season um, with their results. They, they kind of have this weird playoff schedule where like the top four from the season then go into like a round robin tournament. I don't think they're going to win that. Um, but yeah, he's been scoring like a monster. He's a center back. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, absolutely. Why, why wouldn't you bring him back in? Still yeah. young center backs develop later on. Uh, yeah. I expect that he'll kind of take the trajectory as, you know, CCV, uh, very mm-hmm. similar profile as well. Um, just big and demanding in that back line. So. Why not? Why not bring him in? 
fun to see. You'd love to see a center back who scored on four set pieces in his last five games or whatever the number is right now. Um, it's beginning to be a huge story. So, but yeah, beyond that, I think that really covers American soccer. MLS has not been as much fun to watch the last few days um, with all the U20s gone. So yeah. not really a whole lot to report from the domestic game right now. Although Ellie and I have been watching a lot of it on the Discord. If anyone wants to join in, uh, we'll pop on and just sort of do wraparound coverage as we watch different matches just chatting. So anyone is welcome to join in and watch with us and hang out and do some MLS watching. The Discord link is in the description. It's for the, it's called Discord. There are like almost 200 people at this point yeah. in the Discord. Um, yeah, like Tom said, when MLS is on, we're in the voice chat, um, or you guys are. I have been <laughs> able to join. Um, and that supporters lounge only for Patreons and YouTube members is open. You get to talk to us all the time. You get the um, early access to the monthly roster polls and Tom gives you the scientific breakdown of all the polls and and all the trajectories of where all the players and, and coaches are going. So again, do check that out. Try and support us if you can. We would really, really appreciate it. Um, otherwise, let's sign off. Let's do some last words. Tom, what's your last word for the week? Last word for this week is, uh, you know, summer's coming. Enjoy it. Um, I know I'm really looking forward to a summer of soccer. But one last week to get through a really stressful time. So I'm looking forward to putting in some hard work this week and then enjoying a summer of just hanging out and watching soccer. So qualifying exam is this week. It'll be really stressful, but, you know, it'll be over by Friday. <laughs> I feel like every week you are either completely chill, you got anything <laughs> going on, or you are at the precipice of some crazy final or crazy test. Yeah, that's good luck graduate school life right there <laughs> there we go all right my last word is uh enjoy the soccer that you're watching uh, enjoy life while you can and otherwise we appreciate you thanks for watching thanks for listening we'll see you next time on it's called soccer peace see you guys